Welcome back to the Cyclotus Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. It is Monday, March 7th. Should you just pretend that it's actually Tuesday, March 8th, since that's the day the podcast actually comes out? We can and do that. It might it's be It's Tuesday. <laughs> it's Tuesday, March 8th, by the time you're actually listening to this. And we have a lot to talk about. We've got Strada Bianchi. It happened last weekend. We're going to dig into both the men's race, which ended up being, while impressive, uh, more of a time trial than a, than a road race in the end. And the women's race, which was one of the best bike races I think we've seen in a very long time. So I actually think we'll probably kick off with the women's race this week. We're also going to chat about Perry Nice and the um, just ridiculous, ridiculous showing from Jumbo Visma in stage one. Uh, made their own little team time trial thing. And then crosswinds in stage two. And we are going to update you on how the cycling world is reacting to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's been a lot going on. We've been doing some reporting on this. There's also just a lot of sort of stories flying around. Uh, as I promised last week, we are going to dig into this on somewhat regularly. Uh, and also probably in some special episodes, we maybe should get Ian on at some point to talk about Igor Makarov. Uh and then run that through the lawyers to make sure we don't get sued. But yeah, we'll do that. Have you been sued for <laughs> freewheeling yet? I've not been sued for freewheeling. I don't yet. think we. I don't think enough people listen to catch a little bomb that got dropped last week. Sorry. Mm. Should I have been sued for freewheeling <laughs> last week? <laughs> Let's return to that later, Abby. Uh, <laughs> All right, and then in today's Nerd Nugget, we're going to talk about a, a sneaky little soft launch of a Le Mans bicycle. We're going to get into that at the end of the show. The crew today. James, how are you? I'm a little sleepy. I feel like I'm sleepy a lot when you ask me that question. <laughs> could it be because we make these episodes at 8 o'clock in the morning on Monday? It could be, but it could also be because I woke up three and a half hours ago and I've already spent two hours in the car. Mmm, up at Winter Park, gonna go skiing later. Yeah, it's not your fault your internet stops working whenever the powder hits. Same thing with me. It's really weird. <laughs> so strange. <sighs> I've got mad pow disease. Abby. Yes. How are you today? I feel like I'm the only person here who's allowed to complain about being tired since I'm growing an actual human inside of my body, but that's mm. just me. If it's any consolation, Abby, the tiredness continues on after the little human comes out of your body. <laughs> If anything, honestly, maybe it gets worse. Uh, Ronan, can you can you verify that? Um, the tiredness does get worse, definitely. <laughs> to to the point that you no longer know that if, is this normal or is this tired because it's just the new. Uh, I nearly said the new normal. I don't like that saying, but you know what I mean. It's yeah. just it's your new baseline. My my wife was convinced uh, early on that that. The, the tiredness thing was sort of like a biological uh, evolution sort of development that otherwise if you, well, you're, you're so tired and your kid is so cute and looks so much like you that if your kid wasn't so cute and looked like you, that the, the ridiculous tiredness would be so overwhelming that you would never want to have another one. But the tiredness also contributes to you not remembering how hard it was earlier on so that you <laughs> want to have another one. Anyway, let's get into the show. <laughs> let's talk about Strada Bianchi. So let's kick off with the women's race. This was a tactical battle. Abby, you wrote up a great piece sort of dissecting how this all went down uh, and specifically how SD Works got a rider who ostensibly is a sprinter. I mean, clearly is more than that, right? Not, not a pure sprinter in the sort of Mark Cavendish kind of vein but a sprinter uh to the top of a very steep hill after many other very steep hills in Siena ahead of the world's best climber how did they get Lada Capecchi to that finish line prior to the race actually Van Vluten said in in like a pre-race interview that her her biggest fear in the race was SD Works because as per usual SD Works comes in with the, the cream of the crop of riders. They come in with a six rider roster of five riders who can win the race. And so 
I think before the race, a lot of people were thinking and Van Vluten is completely unbeatable. And I was one of those people, uh, the way that she's been riding so far this season just looks, um, unreal. So I, it was, if anyone could have beaten her, it was SD works, but I think it was actually kind of a combination of SC works and Canyon SRAM coming together and just lobbing so many attacks in the final six kilometers that Van Vluten was forced to chase down that she just was burning match after match after match. And when it came to that final climb, she had worked so hard. She was still one of the best riders on the day, but Laura Kopecki, the Belgian national champ on SD works is, was just having like the best day of her career. Well, her career has only just begun, so it'll probably get better, but so far the best day of her career. And she, not only did she make this move mm, on like the second to last gravel section, she broke away solo and she went into that second gravel section with a little bit of a buffer. So she was able to kind of take a couple of these 16% climbs at her own pace, ease into a little bit, avoid all of the attacks that were going behind her. And I think that that maybe didn't make a huge difference, but definitely made a little bit of a difference when it came to the finale, because on the climb, she just looked, she was so composed and just so Van Vluten when she's going, I mean, it just looks chaotic. There's like skinny limbs flying all over the place and it looks like <laughs> she can't actually control her bike. And the, the contrast between Van Vluten on the climb and Kopecky on the climb was just kind of wild because I mean, I thought Kopecky was dropped at least seven times before they came into the final bit of that steep section and they came into the three corners to the finish. Kopecky knew ahead of the race that if she wanted to win, she had to win the final corner. And she immediately at the top of that climb, she passed Van Vluten, took the third to last corner first, Van Vluten passed her again. So it was just like this incredible back and forth for those last three corners. And then Kopecky took the inside line on the final corner and squeezed Van Vluten into the barriers and was, and after that, I mean, the race was over and she sprinted to win. Um, but uh, aside from Kopecky having such an incredible day, there were just attack after attack after attack from Ashley Moman Passio and Demi Vollering, a couple attacks from Chantal Vanderbrook Black, and then a couple attacks from Kashini Wadoma and Elise Shabby that just made the finale one of the best races I've ever seen in my life. Can I just say that that pass that you were talking about where Ben Luton got squeezed into the into the barriers, it, it actually reminded me reminded me a lot of supercross racing. I like supercross racing. It's fun. Um, but that that sort of pass really reminded me a lot of something like that. And it was for me, that was really, really cool to see. Like it wasn't dirty. It wasn't it wasn't I didn't think unsportsmanlike in any way. But I mean, she just squeezed her out. I mean, it was it was it was awesome racing. It was great tactical. I don't great, think that great tactical riding. I don't think Kopecky like actually meant to hit hit her like squeeze her into the barriers that hard, but she was sprinting into that corner. And so she came in with a ton of speed and Van Vluten was trying to get around. I mean, it was, it was not dirty at all because Van Vluten was trying to get around her at the same time. And Kopecky just took the better line. It's the first one of the corner gets the corner, right? I mean, it's, it's like, it's a, it's in motorsport. It's in everywhere. Like it's just how it works. It's, it's, you know, you race like amateur crits and stuff like that and a lot of people yell inside and they want that inside line and that's not how that's not how this then you're like okay I'll inside. <laughs> you're like cool guess where i'm going inside <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I, I have a small complaint here which is that the um i feel like you know there's been a bunch of sort of uh, quick clips chucked up by eurosport and gcn or whatever else from from this finale that don't really capture how good it was. So if you haven't, if you've only watched like the 30 second version of this, most of those little mini replays actually miss one, the corner we're talking about and, and two, just like a bunch of the moves that happen in the last, what, K and a half, 2K, even after about five, 6K, it's worth going and finding the last 15 minutes of this race and, and watching it. Uh, particularly if you yourself are a bike racer, because I think there is a lot to be learned from from just watching a finale like that. It, it was one of the one of the best tactical displays I think we've seen in a long time. I mean, like you said, Abby, Van Vluten was was felt unbeatable coming into this, and even if you just ignore the rest of the race and put 
Kapeki and Vavluten at the bottom of the final climb of the Siena together and don't look at anything that happened before that, it's a pretty it's pretty easy to pick who is gonna take that win, right? And then it ended up the exact opposite. It was such a such a good finish. Yeah. And I mean, for me, there was this moment when there was attacks coming from this front group of maybe maybe seven or eight, and Van Vluten was having to cover every single one of them, and then a group caught on from behind that contained Elise Shabby, Grace Brown, and Chantel Vanderbrook Black, and the and Shabby immediately attacked, which was just such a great moment for me. The the complete commitment to her teammate Kashani Wadoma for one but also that this rider who is very quickly becoming one of the top riders in the peloton had the instinct to catch on and immediately attack, which is not something, it's something that people should do more often, but people don't often do it because it hurts really bad. And it it was such a great move. And then Grace Brown jumped on the front and just drove it into the bottom of the final climb, which also doesn't happen very often. The only other time this race has ever gone into the bottom of the climb in 2017 Everyone sits up for like a couple for a little bit before that left-hand corner because it's it's going to be a hard climb to the Piazza del Campo. So they they know that that's coming so they kind of ease off a little bit, take a couple of deep breaths and then brace up. And that did not happen because Grace Brown was on the front just pinning it to get to the bottom of that climb. And that sort of thing works in in Van Vluten's favor, right? Like yeah. that's exactly what she wants is is a brief bit of respite everyone stop attacking for a second and then it's just it's just who's the strongest in that final climb and she is going to be the strongest in that final climb probably for sure and ends up winning the bike race and i think yeah sd works had the most numbers in this race and so they get they have a lot of they they get to take a lot of credit for the attacks that were thrown and the aggressive racing that happened but but you also have to look at the whole race the whole composition of that final group because it wasn't just SD Works. It was Canyon Sram and it was FDJ also putting in incredible teamwork to not have Van Vluten win, which I give Van Vluten a really hard time because she wins a lot. But the way she wins is the reason that I give her such a hard time. The solo 50 kilometer long attacks that kind of make the race terrible. Like anyone who watched the men's race after watching the women's race walked away, (laughs) but, but at this race was so good that even if Van Vluten had one, it was still like the best, it was one of the best bike races. It was so good. So question, question. It often feels to me like the women's Peloton is scared of enemy Van Vluten, like, or, or maybe unable to throw in the kind of attacks that we saw on Saturday. So what was, what was different? Like why, why were they willing to go attack, 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 attack? Because we've said, in theory, this is the way to beat her. We've known this for years. We've said it on the podcast numerous times. All the directors know it. All the riders know it. The only way you're going to beat her when she's on on form is to throw a bunch of attacks at her, make her chase a whole bunch of times, and then send somebody who hasn't been doing all the work, like Pecky, to go and try to beat her, right? So what, what, what was it about Saturday that made that finally happen? I think it was a combination of a few things. And first of all, you've got Strada Bianchi, which is such a unique race. You know, it's so challenging with not just the gravel roads, but actually the amount of climbing in it as well. The amount of vertical gain is, you know, when I think when you watch it on TV, it maybe doesn't do it justice, just how tough the race is, even if it was on, you know, purely on tarmac. But then also the fact that, you know, as Abby alluded to there, there were so many of the favorites who also had teammates in the finale uh, of this race. And those teammates were just so committed to making the race really difficult and to exposing Van Vluten that, you know, the, the same scenario doesn't always happen, that the favourites who want to chase Van Vluten have a teammate there to do the racing and keep the race aggressive to, to chase her down. And, you know, in that scenario, the, you know, the, those favourites who don't have a teammate rightfully can't, you know, can't can't put themselves in the line to, to bring back Van Vluten or contribute to a chase because ultimately they still end up losing. Whereas on Saturday we had we had teammates who were committed, and even the likes of Demi Vollering, like how many times was she dropped to claw her way back on and then to immediately attack? And you know, I, I was kind of watching it, thinking this is just amazing to watch. But then also was sort of nervous: is she going to get caught out here? Because she clearly didn't have the legs to finish it off. But had she got herself away 
with a stronger rider, you know, she could have, and, and the group behind stalled, she could have found herself out in front only to be, you know, on a hiding to nothing, un unable to match whoever she was with on the final climb up to Siena. But, you know, still she came back. Every time she got back, she almost immediately attacked. And I think that really made a big, big difference on Saturday that we, you know, we didn't see last week at Omloop the same effect. I think you can, I think p part of the reason that these strong riders that have been the, the focal point of most races in the last three years, the reason that they now have teammates can be brought back to the growing professionality of the women's Peloton, that riders that are domestiques are getting paid enough to focus solely on bike racing. So their level is getting better. And SD Works has always been the best paid team in the Peloton. They've always picked up the best riders in the Peloton. That's why they've always had numbers. But now other teams are able to do that. I mean, we saw Trek Segafredo had Sharon Van Enroy in that group. And she's like 19, a 19-year-old 19 cross phenom who, like, mind blown that she was in that group. I mean, it was so incredible. And so riders like that are able to give cycling their all. And that's why we're seeing bigger, this bigger group. And I really hope that it's an indication of some great racing to come with the, the classics coming up because a lot of the times in women's cycling still like incredible racing, but it is like the same 10 riders every time. And we, there was new riders in this group that we have never seen before. Um, like Sylvia Persico was in there from travel, Valcar travel, travel and silence, silence service. And, uh, Yara Castellan from Planta Pura was up there for a really long time. And those are three young riders with Sheeran that, you know, we've not really seen before. And so it was just really exciting. And I do think it is because of how professional the women's Peloton is getting. Yeah. When, when each team second and third rider gets better, that makes the whole race better. Right. It's not just the top woman from the top four teams racing each other. It's the top three women from the top half dozen teams racing each other. It makes a huge difference. And it was a fantastic race. Like I said, if don't don't rely on the I was I was annoyed by this. I was annoyed by the, the little 30 second clips that ended up on the Internet because I didn't pick the right moments. They didn't pick the really good moments uh, of the of even the final kilometer. So go find the last 10 minutes. Go find the last 15 minutes and, and watch that if you haven't already. I know for our U.S. audience, you know, the women's race finished at like, I think it was like five in the morning for me. Uh, so wouldn't surprise me if you didn't catch it live, but it's worth going and watching. It was better than the men's race, that's for sure. It was significantly better than the men's race. <laughs> Speaking of inferior races that's no, not really true it was a, it was a it was a decent bike race happy you can't don't don't be too mean to Tare Pogacar the men's race Strada Bianchi uh it was uh, the last 50k was maybe less interesting than it has been in the past however however if you like watching dominance and in particular if you like watching well what appears to be sort of the rider of his generation at this point it was it was a good watch. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of suspense happening. Uh, there was there's very few moments where you were wondering how it would end up. But just from a you know walk, watching Michael Jordan play play basketball, uh, watching Lionel Messi play football, from that kind of perspective, watching somebody who is just incredible at what they do do it better than anybody else on the planet, watching Tadej Pogacar win on Saturday was pretty darn good. Oh, I thought you were talking about my mate, Matteo Cigala, who won the Grand Fondo Stradivianchi for the second year in a row, but you're not, you're talking that about- That is who I was talking about. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you said Pogaccia there, but it must've just been a breakup in the line or something. I, this is, is but this is, this is my problem with Van Vluten though, is the long range attacks. Like it's not, it's not Pogaccia, it's not Van Vluten, it's the long range attacks that, that just make, make it seem like one rider is better than all the others and there's other things that go into it and maybe they're, they are better than all the others, but it's, it's, it doesn't make for exciting bike racing. Yeah. But I, I think, I think I do genuinely think it's slightly different in men's racing because men's racing is more specialized. I mean, we, we've talked about this numerous times, right? Uh, the women's Peloton, the, the top riders tend to be better at more things. They're, they're just better all around riders. And part of that is because 
they haven't been forced to specialize just yet. And maybe that is coming, but they haven't yet. And that's why you have, you know, the world's best climber is also the world's best time trialist is also wins classics is also all that stuff that in men's racing is, is really quite rare. And to, to, to think back to like the last rider I can think of that was as dominant at the Tour de France and clearly capable and, and frankly dominant in one day races is Bernardino that like, that's the last male rider I can think of that was anything like this. And well, we know, we know sort of what he went on to do, but that, that's sort of the level of, that's the level of dominance that we're talking about here. It was really, really impressive, his attack. And I, and what was really impressive about the attack was actually when he rode away, it was on like a flatter kind of uphill section, but his descending on the gravel where he's like clearly an incredible bike handler. That's what, what I was really impressed by. He like, there was this one corner that he took early on before he actually separated from the Peloton or from the reduced Peloton at that point where all Philippe was behind him, I think. And he like went around came, this little chicane. around Simon Clark. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was, it was such a and great. Simon Clark's a good bike rider. <laughs> yeah. And so the fact that he's able to, to make an attack like this, but he's also like a pretty good bike handler is, is awesome. I, I do, I do like that. I'll give, I'll give that to him. It, it was super impressive. Yeah. Cause, cause it was sort of, like you said, a bit of a rolling section when he first went and he kind of came around Simon Clark and he actually got a couple bike lengths there. And then it wasn't until I think it was Santa Maria that, 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 that sector, the Cancellara sector, I think they call it, um, that he sort of fully, you know, put his foot down. And by the top of that, I mean, it was, it was in a matter of a couple kilometers, he had 30 seconds, 45 seconds, all the way out to like a minute and a half within about 10 or 15 K. And this is with like Julian Alphilippe chasing him, right? Alphilippe obviously had that really nasty crash. You've probably seen the photos by now. We put them up on Instagram. They're up on the site. We actually talked to the photographer who shot those photos, Tim Dewalla. Um, Incredible, incredible images. And because Julian was okay, we kind of felt okay putting them up on the internet. So he was coming back from that. His, you know, his back was was probably not feeling great. So he put himself into domestique mode for Casper Askren, which ended up working out pretty well for the team. Uh, Askren finished in third eventually. But still, you've you've got Julian Alphilippe, the world champion, chasing you, putting in big pulls, and he's just pulling out time, just like no problem. Yeah, and that, that's what was most impressive for me is that, you know, we've seen long-range attacks succeed before, but there's usually some other, you know, some other tactic or something else happening in the bunch that enables that rider to, to do that attack. Like Gilbert and Flanders, you know, there, there was obviously the crash behind, but there was also riders marking each other. Or as Green in E3 last year, you know, there's usually something you can point to that, although it was one rider against the bunch, gives a single rider an advantage. There was nothing really that you could point to on Saturday that could explain how Pogaccia can hold off an entire peloton of some of the best riders in the world. Who were working. Yeah, yes. that, 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 <laughs> like you said, that was the difference. It was, they weren't marking each other. They weren't eyeing each other up. They weren't, they weren't refusing to pull. It was like three quick step riders on the front rolling turns with the world champion taking the biggest turns. And the time just kept going out. Like I said, I, I, I really... I struggle to think of anybody in modern cycling who is capable, who has been capable of doing this on the men's side. Like, so just, just for, for context, Bernardino to, 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 you know, for anybody who's not sort of fully aware of how dominant he was, obviously won five tours de France. Most folks know that also won 28 stages of the tour de France. Uh, won two editions of Lombardia, won two editions of Liège, best on Liège, uh, won two editions of Flesh Wallone, won world championship, won six stages of the Giro, plus three overalls at the Giro, plus two overalls at the Vuelta, plus three criteriums to Dauphiné. I mean, this is a rider who for six, seven years basically won anything that he really wanted to win, right? Uh, notable exceptions to things like like Perry Roubaix, which he didn't like at all. Uh, but that, that's, that's the sort of, 
that's the sort of dominance we're talking about. And I, and I wonder if that's what we're sort of in for for the next half a decade or so. And granted, you know, we always say this, the riders seem unbeatable until suddenly they're not, right? Uh, but it does feel, because Pogaccio is still so young and so much better than everybody else in that bike race on Saturday, that we could be in for some, some pretty incredible pretty incredible levels of dominance for the next like five six seven years uh, i think Eno actually did win paris bay but only because he hated it so much <laughs> he was angry about it yeah <laughs> so i think he, he, he did he not win it and then say it was like bullshit or something to that and then he never raced again yes <laughs> <laughs> which i kind of love yeah but like you know like could pogaccio do that i don't know maybe pogaccio's a there, there are major differences between that era and this one pogaccio is a much smaller individual uh than than the badger was but could he i mean i think hell like i wouldn't put anything past him at this point i don't think you can put anything past him but i think the one difference between eno and pogaccio is that pogaccio just doesn't seem to be as angry which was possibly one of the biggest motivators for eno he was just and still is if you remember a couple of years ago he 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 punched a protester on the stage of the tour. Uh, so I, I think I watched his, him push a dude off the podium at the, at the, <laughs> in Paris one time. It was great. So I think I think he, uh, you know, obviously had amazing talent, but also had the aggression to go with it. And the amazing thing about Pogaccio is it, you know, it doesn't seem to have. He obviously has the the instinct to win a bike race, but you, we usually describe that as a killer instinct. And I don't think anybody could describe Pogaccio as having a killer instinct. Really, he, like it's it's, it's not like- the same. It's like a fuzzy instinct. <laughs> He's got like a like a like a tickler instinct. He just tickles everyone to death. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of curious what an angry Tadej Pogacar would even look like. Like, what would his face look like? Like, you have all you you picture an angry Bernard you know, and you know, like you instantly in your head, you know what that looks like, right? You can it's just see his it. face. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, just, it's just his face. But like, well, what would Pogacar look like if he has that sort of emotion in him? Like, like I. He doesn't I mean, have that he, emotion in him. That's the thing. He loves memes. <laughs> He's like a kid who's like just so stoked to be racing his bike. I, I mean, I kind of love that, but yeah, you wonder, you wonder, I mean, he's clearly motivated. <laughs> he clearly, he's clearly finds the motivation from somewhere or he's so much better than everybody. It doesn't even matter. But you know, to, to do what he did on Saturday, 50 K out that, you know, that hurts. Right, like the, the, he's able to put himself into deep, dark places. There's no question. But yeah, it's 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 harder to pin down. Maybe because he just doesn't sort of conform to that aggressive, you know, aggressive stereotype that a lot of the sort of greatest champions in this sport and others have always conformed to. We don't really know what to do with him because, like I said, like he. The, the tickler's instinct. I don't. I don't like. I don't know what. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to call him. What? What do you? The he's a meme lord. Like I don't. <laughs> I, I'm I'm lost for words to to try to describe, like the way that he goes about attacking a bike race. I think that's partly why you know it, he's actually got so many fans. Well, I, I'm sort of struggling to think of anybody who doesn't enjoy watching today Pogaccia be as dominant as he is and I'm also struggling to think of somebody else who could be that dominant and still have so many fans you know usually the two don't go hand in hand a dominant writer is not particularly you know uh well thought of by a lot of people for whatever reason I think people just don't like dominance but with Pogaccia he seems to have a by ball and that he can win every race he starts uh and and still still be sort of so well thought of and one of the most interesting facts for me was that this is his third one day one and the other two are Liege and Lombardy it's just like well that that's that's why I drew the Bernardino sort of comparison there because those are the races that that he was most often able to to take like I said I think it two two editions of Liege two editions of Lombardy maybe even three editions of Lombardy and it's it's like you have to you have to put Pogacar as as the very top favorite for Lombardia again this year, right? Like, how how do you how do you look at anybody else given displays like that? You know, he's not on you would think top form at the moment, right? Like, his goal for the season is to win the Tour de France, and it's March, 
<laughs> like, he did so say what, what, earlier in the year that he was targeting this, like or the, a couple of the one day races. Yeah. I mean, you could build a bit of a peak in the early season and then take a bit of a break and then come back for the tour. Right. But you still have to think that he'll be better in July than he is in March. He has to be. And well, I mean, who's going to beat him? That's right? yikes. That's a yikes. Yeah. Could, could somebody check is Milan San Remo exciting yet? Because <laughs> Pogaccia <laughs> is that good. He could potentially make Milan San Remo exciting from like 300 kilometers to go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we haven't seen, you know, successful Tupressa attacks in a very long time. Uh, really, since, since the days when um, riders were somewhat artificially supercharged, uh, it'd, be, it'd be interesting It'd be interesting to see his effect on on the race. I still think that that race in particular, there, there's it's harder to strongman that race than it is Strata Bianca, right? Because Strata is so hard. It's so, so hard that you can just through sort of brunt force, blunt force, you can, you can ride away from people if you're stronger, right? Uh, it, it's kind of the same reason why, why a lot of Kopecky going off the front for a little bit it's actually not the worst thing tactically, right? Because when you're on those, the, the, the gravel roads, when you're on those, the, particularly those gravel climbs, being in a bunch isn't actually very helpful. And so it is a totally different thing than Milan San Remo with an average speed of like 55K an hour or whatever the heck they usually do with the tailwind. But we'll see. I mean, it, it, like I said, I, I, I'm not putting anything past him at this point. He's, he's, he's the dominant Grand Tour rider. And at this point, if you look at the last couple one days, even through most of last year, and you take like the really nasty cobble ones out, he's won most of them. So he's he's the most dominant rider in both. It's probably worth noting as well. It, you know, he was showing some signs of being human towards the end of the strata on Saturday. You know, he was having to stretch his back a lot. Uh, and, you know, he was looking behind a lot. And it was only really when he high-fived someone at the bottom of the climb, I thought, yeah, he's confident he's got this. But we've seen Wout van Aert grind or halt in that steep finish before. I was sort of, when I seen him stretching that much, and he was clearly, he wasn't grimacing or anything because I don't think he can do anything other than smile. But he was he, he was clearly under pressure in the, in the closing stages. Naturally, haven't been on the attack for 50K. But I, I, I was holding out some hope that, you know, there, there could have been a closer finish if he really struggled on the climb to Siena. But in the end up... You know, he, 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 I wouldn't say cruised over it, but he, he certainly, he didn't have White Van Aert style issues with the climb. And yeah, it was, I guess what I'm just trying to say is that he, he is slightly human. Slightly. <laughs> Very slightly. I feel like uh, it's worth mentioning who got second in, in Strata because... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had to think there for a second. Because... Pogacar's I mean, dad, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously. This, Like we talk about... Um, Valverde was never dominant in Grand Tours, but he has won the Vuelta, and he's won a bunch of one-days um, in the same style, like Liege-Bastogne-Liege and Flesh Wallone. So him, him coming... Second in his final ever Strada Bianchi to like a child. <laughs> I I just yeah I found very I'm not a huge fan of Valverde but I but I was still entertained by Valverde being so excited when he crossed the finish line and gave Pogacar a hug. Yeah, it was a, a kind of a nice moment, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, I, I think a lot of us have issues with Valverde and in particular him disappearing for two years. Uh, for a doping ban and coming back and just sort of never talking about it again, never apologizing, never acknowledging and never doing any of that. And then coming back and still being a very, very, very good bike racer. Um, I think that those are things are difficult to square. Uh, but anyway, regardless of that, he is a phenomenally entertaining bicycle racer, which if we're just, you know, putting our fan hats on here and just enjoying the spectacle, you, you, you have to love Valverde for that, right? And the fact that he's 41 years old, he he played Casper Asgreen really well, right? Like, he, he, he probably isn't as strong as Asgreen these days, but played him really well and used his, his strengths on those, you know, the final kicker climb up to Siena, got rid of him, and finished second at, yeah, his last ever Stradamiaki. And then, and then gave Pogaccio a big hug uh, because they are, they're, they're, you know, is it game... 
game respects game was was the phrase there. You know, I, I think he sees in Pogacar a rider that isn't, like you said, isn't too far off from who we who he was at his prime, which is you know an ability to win Grand Tours. Granted, not as many, uh, but also be just devastating in these one day races because Valverde's won well a, a large handful of those as well, and he's forty one years old. And he's, you know, hugging the 23-year-old kid. That's great. Two quick things on Valverde. First of all, there's no guarantee this is his last strata. I know he said it, but he said before he was going to retire. And secondly, if my calculations are right, I heard somewhere that there was a 19-year-old in Strata Bianchi, meaning that that writer wasn't even born when Valverde was already a pro. (laughs) (laughs) Just ridiculous. (sighs) Yeah. But then Valverde wasn't born Dudes. when Rebelling was a pro, so. <laughs> uh, I, I yeah, like I said, I kind of struggle with Valverde, but I try to just sort of put all that stuff to the side and just enjoy the, the spectacle. And he's he's an entertaining bike racer. And it's what I'm really not a fan, what but a, it was still. What yeah. a cool way to. What, yeah, but like what a cool way to do your last strata. Sush, maybe second to last strata, third to last strata, whatever. Yeah. Marco whatever Brenner be. of Team DSM. Was the youngest rider in the race at 19. Then there was a couple 20-year-olds. Quinn Simmons, Antonio T. Who had a great day. Yeah. Quinn had a a fantastic... What is he? Was he sixth or seventh or something like that? He was seventh, yeah. Yeah, and he's been up there at Strata before. He had a crash, I think, last year that took him... Or a flat that took him out last year. Something took him out last year, but he was in the same sort of, like, select group last year. So I think he's one to keep an eye on in the next couple years. Let's move on to Perry Nice, which kicked off on Sunday uh, with what turned out to be, even though it was not in the road book, a team time trial. Abby, what happened? Yeah, um, the final climb of the day, it was, you know, it was kind of built to be, yeah, an exciting finish, but potentially like one of the the punchy sprintery types like Bess Peterson, perhaps, or or someone like that. And going into the bottom of this final climb of the day that was like seven-ish K out from the finish, Jumbo Visma just lined it up on the front and like really led it into the bottom of this this little poppy climb. And um, Christophe Laporte attacked on that climb and looked behind him and he had his two teammates on his wheel, uh, Primoz Roglic and Wout Van Aert. And for a little while, there was also, um, Zenek Stebar was there, but he did not even make it to the top of the climb. And these three guys like crested the top of the climb and came around this corner and it was just the three of them. And then they organized very quickly as you would, if you're three teammates off the front and just like started a team time trial. And it wasn't that they, their performance was incredibly dominant compared to the rest of the peloton. It was that the rest of the peloton was super strung out before the bottom of the climb, blew to pieces on the climb, and then no one could organize uh, in the final. Like when it showed the peloton coming into the finish and chasing these three out front, they were like almost at a standstill. Like they were not going. They were not going fast. They were going slow enough that I think Nielsen Palace like threw an attack off the front that. People were like, what, what are you doing? And brought him back. But it it was discombobulation in the Peloton. And these three guys that are teammates that have ridden together and, and know how to ride together that organized very, very quickly to ride to the finish together. And Christophe Laporte took, took the stage of victory. They told him with 1K to go that he would be the guy to win the day. So he is in the yellow leader's jersey for stage two as well. And... It's his first year on the team. He's been on Cofidis for seven years or something like that. Um, and it's his first year with Yumbo Visma. And he was just so excited that he got to take this stage win. And then Primus Roglic and Wow Van Aert went 2-3. And Roglic now has like over 20 seconds on any of his general classification rivals, even before stage two, which saw a huge shakeup due to the crosswinds. Now, obviously, uh, I, I the first thing that many people thought of was uh, the 1994 edition of a Flesh Willown finishing on the on the Mir de Hui, uh, and the the triple, the three three arms in the air of the Gavice Balan team, or in Argentine won that day, Giorgio Furlan in second, and Evgeny Berzin in third. 
Uh, slightly different scenario, though. First, first of all, they attacked really early uh, and rode away in, in a extremely dominant fashion with it, like a, a you know very, very, very large peloton still chasing them. What were the other sort of different differences here, Ronan, between that day, which I think we all understand some of the context around, again, 1994, uh, and, and Sunday? Yeah, well, like I was saying earlier with Pogaccio, there's usually something you can point to that makes an otherwise incredible or unbelievable performance a bit more understandable or, or allows it to happen, basically. And yesterday, if you look at the... Not so much the climb, but if you look at the, the five or 10 kilometers before the final climb yesterday, it was just absolutely chaos in the bunch. Jumbo Visma were riding on the front. They looked like totally in control. But if you look 20, 30 places back in the bunch, it was just chaos. There was riders fighting for every wheel, riders trying to, you know, get in out of the winds. When the camera cut to the back of the bunch, there was, you know, there wasn't ones and twos getting dropped. There was 10 riders at a time getting dropped from the back of the peloton. Firstly, because of the wind. Secondly, because of the sheer speed that Yombo were riding at, but also because the roads were so small and so narrow and so twisty that the the, the peloton was just you know it, it wasn't so much strung out, but it was it, it was just the, the the hammer was completely down coming into the climb, and it meant that just as the as the bunch came to the bottom of that climb, Yombo Visma had uh, Nathan Van Houdonk, I think, on the front, and you know if anybody's ever raced in that sort of situation, being at the front of the peloton is like it's it's just so much easier than being anywhere else in the bunch. Being middle of the bunch or being at the back is just, a, you know, a recipe for disaster, basically. So when, when the Yombo Visma riders came to the climb, they would have been, I'm not saying they would have been fresh, but they would have been so much below the red line than anybody else behind them. And when Nathan Van Houten just, like, absolutely emptied the tank at the bottom of the climb and then set, basically to set up his teammate Laporte to attack, the, the bunch was already shattered behind them. Uh, and as as Abby was saying there, it was only Stebar who could initially follow. He followed, but when White Van Art came through to take his turn after the port, Stebar started getting distanced. And the one part that for me was just absolutely insane was that Laporte was actually behind Stebar when Stebar got dropped, and he came around Stebar to get back to his two teammates in front. And like he he had made the not the initial attack, but he had made you know the the the, the main effort for most of the climb. And was still able to respond to close that gap, which left just three Yumbo Visma riders in front. And then when they turned at the top, uh, it was slightly downhill all the way to the finish, but it was a block headwind, which usually doesn't favor a breakaway. But given how explosive the climb was and how chaotic the bunch was, there was just no organization. And when there's zero organization and a headwind, yeah, it was it was almost impossible for the for any team to get organized in the bunch and bring back three riders as strong as the three riders we had in front. So, you know, it was, it, it was, yes, we had one, two, three, which, you know, is always a sign of, you know, an extremely well-oiled machine uh, team and, you know, fantastic teamwork. But I think we have to look but before the climb as well to see the rest of the Yumbo Visma team and the teamwork that they did. Yeah. And, and um, Laporte said at the finish line that that was not the plan. It just so happened that the three of them were there when he, had, when he went and so they just really quickly organized, but it wasn't the plan for them to team time trial away. <laughs> a couple, a couple other key differences between. And I, I don't want to sound like we're just like defending this, but we just saw a bunch of comments, basically directly comparing this ride to what is known as as one of the sketchiest rides in cycling history. Um, in 1994, the three Gavice riders. Uh, we're off the front for 70 kilometers together. <laughs> just rolling, rolling turns, just doing a team time trial with the entire peloton chasing. And they finished a minute. Well, actually, one of them got dropped. Which one was got? Oh, Berzin got dropped uh, on the final climb. So he finished 22 seconds back. And then the next rider was Gianni Bugno, a minute and 14 behind them in a group of two. Uh, it, they basically, like, they were unsurprisingly about 8% better than most of the rest most of the rest of the field and that was not really the same as the somewhat strange tactical thing that happened on Sunday still ridiculously impressive uh and indicative i think of the fact that yumbo brought a, a crazy strong team 
to Paranese this year, but not the same thing as a three-man team time trial for 70 kilometers. It's very different. Mm. The, the Porto, I think, you know, yes, they told him with a kilometer to go, he was going to win the stage, but, you know, the Porto is a rider who has, you know, been on a lot of people's radar for the last couple of years, you know, had a string of big, big results with confidence, mostly in French races, but, you know, I don't think anybody expected him to make the, the you know, the leap that he's made with Yombo so far. You know, he was so instrumental in Umlop last weekend, or sorry, Kerna last weekend, just getting caught with, what, 50 metres to go? And now this weekend, he wins the stage and is in the yellow jersey of Paris-Nice. And um, again, you know, he, he is a rider who has shown he has that sort of talent, but it just shows you what a, a team like Yombo and, you know, they are, they're obviously clued into to everything, how much of a step up a rider can can make then joining a squad like that and obviously having the motivation of working off riders like White Van Hart and Primoz Roglic. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, and having, yeah, having teammates like that to, like, what other team is going to team time trial better than those, than those three? <laughs> you get a gap, it's, a, it's over, right? It's, it's, it's just all over. Anyway, let's move on from Perry-Nice. Wait, oh, we got stage two. Stage two happened this morning. Uh, Fabio Jakobsen, yet another pretty pretty impressive sprint display. Lots of crosswinds in stage two. And Jakobsen sort of making another, another case for himself at the Tour de France. I think this is going to be something that we're sort of keeping an eye on for the next couple months because, yeah, he's winning. Cad's winning. Everyone's winning. What are they going to do at, at the Tour? We won't, we won't know until July. But... Jakobsen is making a case for himself right now to be really the dominant sprinter of this entire season, I think. Yeah, I don't have anything to add except that the crosswinds took a couple of the general classification hopefuls out of the conversation, notably uh, Maximilian Schachmann, who won last year, and Brandon McNulty, who's had a really incredible start to the season. Both of them lost a minute and a half on stage two because they were caught behind a split in the crosswinds. So uh, the time trial is stage three, so that'll be today for everyone listening to the podcast, the day it comes out. But even with McNulty's time trialing skills, I don't think, I think a minute and a half loss to Primoz Roglic on stage two of Perry-Nice pretty much takes UAE out of the conversation. Um, his teammate, Zhao Almeida, also finished pretty far down. So... That was an interesting development that happened. There was one moment where it looked like Jack Haig and Adam Yates were completely out of the conversation as well, and Simon Yates of Team uh, Bike Exchange. But those these two groups did come back together that contained a couple of the GC riders. So the conversation's not over yet, but there was some some riders took hits. Some riders took hits in the crosswinds. And Torino starts on, started on Monday by the time you listen to this. Uh, we don't have any. News just done from Torino. Yeah, Pag- it's Pagaccia is in fact human. He was only third in the 14 kilometer pamphlet time trial. No, he was fifth. No, sorry. That fifth? The, no, sorry. I was looking at the wrong finishing. Result. I think it's finishing yeah. right now, right? Yeah, Do he's third. Know? He's is third, it right? Yeah, it's, it just ended. I was looking at the T1 results. He was fifth in the first time trick. So Wait. final is Filippo Ghana. Yep. Unsurprising. Followed by Remco Evenepoel. Also not super surprising. Wait. Oh, that was previous. And then and then Tade Pogacar. Sorry, this is literally happening right now. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk more about we'll talk more about Toreno next week. Uh when it's done. <laughs> it's not done yet. Or at least mostly done. We have two week. two of the big kind of pre- early season stage races going on this week. So I think the takeaway from Perry Nice and Torino going on at the moment is just that there's like a lot of top general classification riders that are testing their legs against each other, like Remco Evenepoel and, um, and uh, Pogacar at Torino, and then obviously Roglic at Perry Nice. Yep. Interesting to me that Roglic and, and Pogacar are not in the same race. They, they, the, the top contenders often often will do that. Pretty much Toronto only because of the overlap between Strada and Perinis, I'm pretty sure. All right, let's move on from racing. We do have some some news updates around the Russian invasion of Ukraine and sort of cycling's response to that. As I said, we're going to dig deeper into this kind of separately, but we did want to update, update everybody. Um, a couple 
kind of headlines. Look and Karima have canceled their sponsorship of the Russian-backed Gazprom team. Uh, the UCI has basically banned, well, has banned, Russian and Belarusian teams from competing at Worlds and also, well, competing pretty much anywhere. Uh, Pavel Sivakov, who has lived in France, I think basically his entire life, is switching his nationality from Russian to French, and so he will continue to be able to ride because the other thing that the UCI did was say that anybody, any rider with uh, Russian or Belarusian nationality uh, is, is basically out of luck. So the UCI did kind of, it's the firmest, it's the firmest response that we've seen from them to almost anything in, in recent memory. Uh, partially good to see, partially, I don't know, somewhat problematic. Joe Lindsay wrote a, a, an opinion piece for us last week. If you missed that, go check it out. Um, you know, there were definitely other options, more nuanced options that the UCI could have taken, but I, I'm not, I'm not personally sure that nuance is, is, is really necessary here. I mean, there, there's essentially, uh, there's going to be, for, for want of a better, a, a better term, collateral damage in sanctions and things. Um, you know, the whole point of sanctions is that they, they hurt folks that aren't necessarily directly responsible, right? You sanction more than just Vladimir Putin is, is, is kind of the key. And unfortunately, that means some athletes who have absolutely nothing to do with, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But you kind of have to hit it from all, from all angles here. Um, you have to, you know, hit every pain point possible, basically, to, to try to turn the tide of either public opinion or oligarch opinion or something. And so, like I said, I'm not, I'm not sure that nuance is, is fully necessary in this particular area. It, it, it is, of course, unfortunate that athletes and teams who, like I said, aren't, aren't directly responsible are, are being hurt, but just that, that's the way sanctions work. That's kind of the whole idea. No. Any opinions on this? I think most of the criticism around this decision was punishing the athletes for something that they have no say in, but I mean, it's like literally a war. So it's a little bit more complicated than picking and choosing who is, for lack of a better word, punished for what's going on right now. I mean, I don't have to say what the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine means for the world and, and means for like the fallout that's going to happen, even if it ends tomorrow, is devastating for many, many countries. So, yeah, I, th I think, you know, two of us on here are American, and I think that we have a particular sense of empathy for individuals from a country doing things that that you don't necessarily like. We're Americans and we uh, weren't probably, I don't want to speak for you, James, but weren't extremely stoked on things like the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war and also have zero control over things like that. And so I do think that we have, a, I, have a, I personally have a lot of empathy for Russians who have nothing to do with this and, and maybe adamantly oppose it and, and live in a country where opposing it can get you jailed and, and things like that for sure. Uh, but I think that if you take a broader a broader view, like I said, you know, the purpose of sanctions is to hit as many pain points as, as, as absolutely possible. And sport is one of them. I mean, it's this, it's the same reason why Russia has, has wanted to sport wash itself over the last couple decades, right? It's the reason why they keep hosting the Olympics is because sport matters and sport matters and doping their athletes. Sport matters, you know, sport matters for public opinion, sport matters for national pride. And, you know, I do think that there's, some danger in in fueling a, a persecution complex, which Putin seems to, to definitely have. But you know, if done if done well and if done properly, then then I do think that you know these sort of sanctions are are justified. Uh, and again, I say that with just a huge amount of empathy for individuals who are at the whim of their government, like we have often felt as Americans, um, government doing things that we didn't necessarily agree with. So. But anyway, like I said, we're going to talk more about this. We're going to dive deeper into it. We're going to bring you a whole bunch on uh, cycling's sort of direct response and involvement on this, but that'll be in a, in a special episode at some point and with the reporters who are doing the reporting on that, which four of us 
moment or not. Let's move on. Let's move on to today's nerd nugget. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. James, Greg Lamond has made bicycles a couple different times <laughs> over the last couple de- decades. Uh, he was making them, uh, well, Trek was making them with his name on them. He was making them on his own. He's made some e-bikes. He's involved in carbon manufacturing at some level. Uh, and then that, something popped up kind of in the last week. What, what, what do we see here? Yeah, so LeMond kind of quietly dropped onto the internet this a website for a new road bike uh, called the LeMond 8, um, which is a homage to his eight-second Tour de France victory, uh, what, like 30 years ago now almost, or a little over 30 years ago now. Uh, it, it's an aero road bike, as you'd expect. Uh, it's kind of got all the modern features, 32-millimeter tires, it's carbon fiber. It's got a bunch of really interesting stuff on it, too, that kind of make it a little bit different. Um, it says that it has no metal parts, including threads, uh, including the threaded bottom bracket, carbon threads, carbon threads. Um, you have an option for like internal or external cable routing. You have this full uh, frame and fork expanding foam core. Like there's a focus on safety and reliability. Uh, there's a bunch of interesting stuff in here. Um, pretty competitive, I would say, pricing, or to which which is to say like similarly outlandish as other high-end road bikes. So it's like. Twelve and a half thousand US for a complete bike with Le Mans branded carbon wheels and Durace Di2, or you can buy a, a frame set for eighty five hundred US. Um, I mean, this all sounds interesting, and the fact that Le Mans is is behind it is is definitely big news. But um, so this came out several days ago, and and some other outlets have written about this, and and we've actually received some criticism recently for why we haven't written something about this yet. But the reason why I haven't written anything about this yet is because while this whole thing is interesting, there are so many unanswered questions about this that, uh, that we just haven't gotten answers to them yet. I, I've contacted the company, haven't heard anything back yet. Um, all the images on the website are renderings. Um, there's no real information. Um, I, it sounds cool. I, I like that he's back in the game. I, I have a personal uh, personal soft spot for, for Le Mans bikes. You know, I've owned several of them in the past. I actually bought uh, I, I used frame set not too long ago to, to build up as a personal bike. Like, like I have nothing against Le Mans at all. Like I'm super excited that they're back in the business, but there, there are so many information gaps in this that I just can't help but wonder what the, what the deal is with this thing. It looks cool. It does look cool. It, it looks cool. I mean, it's, I mean, it's a little generic, I think, as far as the, the style, it's an, it's an aero road bike. They kind of all like, I shouldn't yeah. say they all look the same, but there, there are a lot of similar design cues. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm continuing to dig into this thing. Um, we're going to talk about it in much, much more depth in this week's Nerd Alert podcast. Um, but yeah, there's a, something's going on in the, in the Le Mans world. Which we like to see. We like to see Greg back in the game here. And and yeah, like, they've been doing some interesting stuff around making their own carbon fiber and the e-bikes are cool. And yeah, we'll try to find more information. We don't have it yet. <laughs> <laughs> we prefer to get our questions. We, we need our questions answered before we're gonna we're gonna really write anything. So yeah. So in in the meantime, stop yelling at us. <laughs> this, this bike doesn't even exist yet. <laughs> to the point where they don't have real photos of it. They have renderings. That 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 is it. We do hope it exists though. Like I said, it looks cool. I like the look of it. We'll keep an eye out. So keep an eye out on the site for something on a new Le Mans road bike. Go check out Freewheeling if you want an even deeper dis- discussion of this weekend's Strada Bianca. Uh, and to find out why Kaylee might get sued. Kaylee. And to find out why I might get sued. I'm a little concerned about this. Uh, hmm. <laughs> well, it won't be me getting sued. It would be our whole company getting sued. So hopefully. <laughs> Maybe it'd be you getting sued, Abby. I'm kidding. Fine. We didn't actually uh, say anything. I'm joking. <laughs> but I just want people to go listen to Freewheeling. And if you give them something like that, they're like, oh, I wonder what they possibly could have said. We're fiery over there a lot of the time. but Yeah, it's 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 fi- it's a fiery place, Freewheeling is. And then, yeah, check, uh, make sure you, you load up Nerd Alert to hear more about this LeMond this week. All right. That's it from us. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.
Jesus Christ. Whoa. Hold on. What have, was that? I have a package. Okay. <laughs> I thought you got electrocuted. 